In the wake of a number of high-profile cases concerning violence against women and girls, including domestic abuse, it's a good time to consider this epidemic of violence. Some of the content in this episode may trigger anxiety or distress for some people. My guest on this episode of the Leanne Wood podcast has helped to provide services for women who have experienced violence or abuse for more than a decade. She currently works for Cardiff Women's Aid. Gwendolyn Sturk is known as a tenacious, forthright and knowledgeable defender and promoter of women's rights. And I'm really pleased that she's able to chat with me. Christo Gwendolyn. Hi, thank you for having me. Can I first of all ask you to explain why violence and abuse against women and girls has been termed an epidemic? Well, I think, you know, as women ourselves and if we talk to any of our friends who are women or women identifying, we've all had some form of experience of harassment or abuse during our lifetime. I don't think there's many women who haven't had at least some sort of harassment in the street, harassment at work, or experienced something in their relationships throughout their lifetime. The statistics say it's one in three women, but I think when talking to friends and family, we know that it's impacting across all of our communities and it intersects across our identities. And obviously that plays out in different ways with different inequalities that legitimise, condone and conceal the violence and abuse we experience in different ways and create barriers to support. But I think every woman out there is experiencing some form of this or also experiencing the fear of violence and abuse throughout our lifetime. And therefore it's a population-wide issue and we need a population-wide response as we've had with COVID. We've seen how public health response can go out there and start to prevent the spread of a pandemic. We need a similar kind of response to prevent violence and abuse against women because it's not inevitable. We can stop it. It can end. But we need that epidemic response to this experience that's impacting all of our lives. What do the statistics show? Is the situation getting worse? I think it's, you need to look at the statistics in a nuanced way. There has been a significant increase in reporting. And from a frontline perspective, we're seeing a significant spike in those accessing support. But I don't think it's as easy as saying there is more domestic abuse or there is more abuse happening. I think there has been a great growth in understanding of what abuse is. And also in a positive way, an understanding and a willingness from women and girls to come forward and realise that it's not acceptable that they're experiencing this and that there is places for them to get support. But I think what the statistics really show is it's not getting better. We know that the number of women being killed each year in the UK is not going down. It was 141 in 2021. 10 of those were from Wales and they were from the ages of 15 to 71. And also, if you look at the statistics, what they're also showing is the systems, the justice systems that are there to respond to this violence and abuse are definitely not getting better. You know, we're talking about um, 1.3% of reported rapes. So, you know, we know that most rapes aren't reported. So these are the tip of the iceberg uh, result in a summons or a charge that's going down year on year as well. So while we might, I can't necessarily say it's increasing as the number of rapes are increasing, the way we're responding to it isn't getting better and it's definitely not going down. What happened during Covid? I think what Covid did was it kind of exposed abuse that was already there and exacerbated abuse that was already happening. The Covid regulations, while they were important to protect us against the pandemic, 
they handed a tool to perpetrators, particularly domestic abuse perpetrators, who then had a means of further controlling women's access to support, to friendship groups, to networks. It kept people within that home environment. Perpetrators were home all day. There was no respite from the abuse and the control that was happening in people's lives. And it obviously grew and exacerbated the tension within that environment as well. So, you know, we know that violence escalates when the, the power and control of the perpetrator is challenged. And um, when you're stuck with somebody all day, that challenge is more inevitably going to happen. And therefore we saw, you know, escalations of the levels of violence and abuse that was happening. So the calls that were coming in, there were more calls coming into support and helplines and the women were in more direct situations of crisis and more serious situations of abuse during that time. So yeah, it definitely escalated and exposed the abuse that was happening across our communities. Mm-hmm. What are the links between violence against women and girls, including domestic abuse, and power and control? For example, rape is less about sex than it is about control. So can you explain that? Yeah, so if I start with domestic abuse, because I think it's it's very clear there that I think our understandings have been changing around domestic abuse, particularly across the population recently, in much more broadening our understanding of domestic abuse as a pattern of behaviour in which one person is coercively controlling another person through means of physical, sexual, psychological, financial abuse and threats and intimidation to create a pattern of domination of power, exerting power and control over another person. So domestic abuse, often when we think of it in sort of old-fashioned ways, people have thought about it as a physical, he punches her, there's a black eye, that's domestic abuse. Well, actually now, I think the understanding is much broader and it understands it as it's a means in which the perpetrator, normally a, a man, has that power and control over, over the woman and controls that situation. It's all about the dynamics there. I think with sexual violence, obviously, much of that does happen within that environment, but also happens wider. And it's, again, about that exertion and domination of women and that right to have and, and possess that woman's body. And I think even more broadly for me, when again, going back to sort of why it's an epidemic, violence against women and girls is about power and control because it controls what we as women can do in our society. It controls where we walk and and when we can go out at night. It controls whether we feel comfortable in a job or a room where we're feeling harassed. It controls just our sort of opportunities in life and where we want to go. Fundamentally, it's abuse of power and control of, of women goes across society. It's not just within that sort of domestic abuse individual situation. It's also a societal abuse of power and control. I wonder if you can explain why it's such a problem if perpetrators of abuse hold positions of power, like within the police force or within the field of politics, for example. Yeah, so as I said, violence against women is about this mechanism of power really it upholds and maintains patriarchal societal norms and cultural beliefs and structures that we have in society so where we see men in positions of power entitlement and with the means of mechanisms of control unfortunately we also see a significant amount of abuse of women and girls Abuse doesn't happen in isolation. Oh, domestic abuse is over there in that pocket, or it's a one-off incident. If the person that's abusing holds those attitudes and powers and beliefs about their right to behave like that towards women and girls. A lot of the conversation at the moment about misogyny is 
sometimes we obscure it as saying, oh, well, he's a misogynist, he's one bad apple. Definitely heard about that within the Met, for instance, recently. And that doesn't really understand what misogyny is. Misogyny is an outcome of an unequal society, which sees like men having greater power than women and views women and girls in an inferior position. So if we have men that have committed these acts of abuse or have this misogynistic attitude and are enacting on it in positions of power, we're legitimizing and condoning this attitude towards women and saying that it's okay. If we talk about like then how that plays out for the women that are victims of domestic abuse in their home and they're seeing this and he's seeing these men being held in these positions of power, that further disenfranchises them it feeds into the idea that it's okay for this to happen to them and that's the attitude that society has it also tells the perpetrators that it's it's fine and what they're doing is okay and then on a more fundamental level it gives more power to other men in positions of power be that mps or police who have that mechanism of control and power over us already they're places where we're supposed to go we're told to go to the police for safety we're told to go to our mp to raise our issues we're told to go to our local councillor to raise concerns they're not safe spaces for us to go because we don't know whether those men hold misogynistic views and are being allowed to sit in that position. And the Sarah Everard case shone a light on exactly that, didn't it? I mean, how that power can be used to catastrophic effect. The law in relation to domestic abuse has recently changed to cover coercive control, which you've touched upon, and also strangulation. Why were these changes in the law needed? I think with the coercive control legislation, and we really celebrated when this came in in 2015 from the Women's Aid movement, is it saw what women had been experiencing. When women come into our services, very often they describe a situation which is about this experiencing this pattern of coercion and control in which their freedom has been taken away from them. And that legislation put into law that understanding of what domestic abuse is and rather than just seeing it as isolated incidences of one-off violence or physical abuse it actually saw what it's like to live women talk about walking on eggshells and completely having their reality changed and controlled and that piece of legislation enabled us to shine that light on it and to hold those who commit that abuse to account I think with the strangulation, which has more recently come into legislation with the Domestic Abuse Act, again, that is about recognising the seriousness of this abuse and recognising how, within the physical aspects of, of some forms of abuse, how it is used as a way of saying, I have control over your life. That's what that form of strangulation does and it happens so often in abusive situations it's making the women live within the fear and threat of their life and that he can take it at any point and the fact that it wasn't being treated as seriously within legislation because it wasn't seen as an actual threat to life until the recent change in legislation meant that quite often it wasn't able to be actively prosecuted and seen within that mechanism of he's threatening her life and the likelihood also is that at some point he will take it can you explain what DAVO is? Yeah, DAVO has been definitely something that's been discussed recently. I know it's been very much attached to the Amber Heard case. 
And it's an acronym of looking at the ways in which perpetrators can react to a situation of domestic abuse or abuse when they are trying to be held to camp. So it stands for denying, attacking, reverse victimisation and offender. So I think we've got to be careful not to go through a tick box scenario with this. And we know abuse is a dynamic situation. And if you talk to survivors, the situation is often they're looking to sort of tick these boxes. I want people to understand that you might not be able to tick all of these boxes, basically. But Again, going back to the sort of power and control of what abuse is, the perpetrator wants to maintain power in any way possible. So whether that's sort of through the gaslighting of creating the reality that works for them and gaslighting the victim into this is what is the reality so that they can maintain power. And then we know that leaving can be the most dangerous time. So again, when their power is challenged, that's often when the most serious violence comes out. And that's the way of trying to reinstate their power and control. And then when you are of the belief that you have the right element of power control, when that starts to be challenged and taken away from you, it can feel like victimization. Sat within a position of privilege, losing that position, perpetrator will feel victimized. But obviously we need to make sure that when we are looking at these cases and hopefully within sort of the sort of judge justice cases, if they have this understanding that this is what the techniques that perpetrators use to undermine a victim, then we can actually see and expose that power of control and we can expose the gendered and unequal underlying issues around what domestic abuse actually is. Can perpetrators of violence or abuse change? For those of us who believe that people can be rehabilitated, what does that look like? I think from my feminist perspective is I really do think that yes, it is possible to change. And I wouldn't be an active feminist if I didn't think that this thing, this could change and perpetrators could change. Um, I see the possibility in men and in society to change. Um, I don't think abuse is inevitable. I don't think young, young boys are born to be abusive. It's something that's learnt. It's something that's been sewn into our society and we can unpick it. And we can unpick that with individuals as well as across society. So I think, yes, perpetrators can change, but it's going to take significant work. A one-off awareness course is not by any means going to address the underlying beliefs and attitudes that have caused that abuse. And actually, if anything, could be dangerous because it could further empower the perpetrator to think that they are in the, again in that position of control and power and can hold and the definition of what domestic abuse is. But there are projects out there and there is work going on out there to look at behavioural change that is very much situated within that understanding of challenging misogyny and promoting gender equality and changing attitudes and behaviour to align to that. And also, very importantly, align to support for the survivors in that situation, because the survivors are the ones that have the knowledge of whether actually change is happening. So I think, yes, there is possibility of change and we do want to look for a society that can move forward and we can have a society hopefully free from abuse in future. But it takes that work around challenging misogyny and changing that attitude and promoting gender equality. And we need to know that that's effectively been done with both the individual perpetrator and society as a whole to get us there first. Yes, I concur entirely. As a former probation officer who's worked in this field, I know how difficult this area of work is, but it is possible. It is possible to achieve good outcomes, but as you say, it is an incredible amount of work. Gwendolyn, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about a very difficult subject. What you've said has been very interesting. Diolch and Laurian. Diolch.
If you would like support, confidential advice around domestic abuse, sexual violence or violence against women, anyone can contact the Welsh Women's Aid Live Fear Free Helpline on 0808 8010800 or text 07860 077333 or email info at those who have helped me with this project. Diolch to the team at Audacity, the open source audio editing software used to make this podcast. Diolch to Nick James for the artwork. Diolch to Llewyn Stefan, the creator of the music. And finally, Diolch to all the podcast support and subscribers. I'm grateful to all of you. I'm looking for support to continue to make these podcasts. You can become a supporting subscriber by checking out my Patreon page. You have been listening to the Leanne Wood.